remain standing with me out of respect for God's holy word. And turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, as we very methodically and yet slowly work our way through this very rich set of instructions on spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 11 this morning. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. May God add His rich blessing in the reading of His Word. Let's call upon Him for help to understand. Set us free, O God, from the bondage of our sins, and give us the liberty of that abundant life which You have made known to us in Your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm sure most of you have had this experience before that... um, You are so excited by something in your life that uh, you couldn't wait to tell somebody else about it. And yet when you tried to tell somebody else about it, it was hard not to say everything all at once. And it was also hard to say everything that you needed to say. Well, that's how I feel this morning. Uh, having spent a joyful week studying God's Word and continuing to enjoy the richness of, of this study on these spiritual gifts, it's been a very exciting week of discovery and reflection and thinking and prayer and understanding God's Word and all of the depth of the riches of the instruction here. And I confess that it's going to be very difficult for me to uh, not say everything at once. It's going to be very difficult for me to say everything that I need to say And it's also going to be difficult for me to uh, stop this sermon if I need to early because there is so much information here. I don't want us to be overwhelmed as if it's an information tsunami. So I'll try to uh, uh, see if the message is registering with us this morning as we go along and see maybe perhaps if we need to have a stopping point somewhere along the way and just continue to take up our studies next week. But this very fascinating section on spiritual gifts begins, first of all, uh, with an emphasis on diversity. It begins with an emphasis on diversity. And I'm going to say some things here that I've probably already said in the scope of this study already, but we need to hear them, and we need to remind ourselves of them in order that we may be solidified in our thinking about these things that Paul is speaking of here by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the very first thing he talks about here is diversity, as I said. I notice there are diversities of gifts. There's the word of wisdom, there's the word of knowledge, there's the gift of faith. We'll have to talk about that because that by itself presents some problems. There's the gift of healing, 
there's the effecting of miracles, there's prophecy, there's distinguishing of spirits to uh, tongues, and finally interpretations of tongues. And that right there signals diversity. But if we just step back from this uh, particular text and place it within the flow of biblical revelation about text, what we'll find is that there's more diversity. Uh, Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 6, we find that Uh, God gives differing grace to God's people and there's prophecy and there's service and there's teaching and there's exhortation and there's liberality and there's leadership and there's mercy. If we were to turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 we would find that there are apostles and there are prophets and there are evangelists and there are pastors and there are teachers. If we were to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, we would find out that there are people who've been gifted with the utterance and the ability to speak, and there are others who've been given the ability to serve. If we looked in our own chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we would find that God has appointed apostles and prophets and teachers and miracles and healings and helps and administrations and tongues. All I'm trying to say here is there's a whole lot of gifts. That's what Paul is saying. There are over 20 categories of spiritual gifts outlined in the New Testament. And if you compare gift passages over against each other, what you'll find is that there's overlap, there's uh, exclusion of some gifts, there's an addition of others. And uh, what scholars think that all this means is that the apostles' intent wasn't so much to... Uh, identify and enumerate every single spiritual gift that God has uh, graced his body with, but to say this, that there is a variety of gifts, and the variety of gifts is essential for the health and the welfare of the body. Now, why is that an important point this morning? Well, we've talked about this already. The Corinthians, uh, at least some of them, were uh, sort of having experience of self-inflated ego. Because it seems that there were many within Corinth who had been given the gift of tongues. And they seemed to be very fascinated and pleased with themselves about the gift of tongues. And they seemed to have privileged this gift above the others. And they seemed to have used that to become uh, arrogant and and pride-filled. And so what the Apostle has to say here as he begins to address the issue of spiritual gifts is to, is to sort of puncture that self-inflation and say, uh, you're not better than your brother or your sister in the Lord because you speak in tongues because there are a variety of gifts that have been given to God's church and all of those gifts find their source in the Holy Spirit. And that is a reflection then on the quality and the importance and the substance of these gifts. There's variety, but there's unity in the sense that they all come from God's Spirit. That means they're all useful. That means they're all essential. That means they're all helpful. That means then, secondly, that as the Spirit distributes those across His body, the church, uh, that uh, people receive those by grace. Uh, just because somebody has the gift of tongues to, uh, to speak in tongues, for instance, uh, doesn't mean that they are elevated spiritually above somebody else who, let's say, has the gift of, well, maybe interpretation, or has healings, or miracles, or, or uh, faith, or whatever these gifts are. It's not a reflection on the person, as if the person, because they received a particular gift, uh, is somehow considered worthy 
somehow considered more righteous, better in God's sight. Paul's point here, as he talks about uh, unity and diversity, a variety of gifts, what he's saying is, uh, we all need to appreciate the fact that God gives these uh, by grace. And that they are essential, all of them, to the health of the church. And then also what the Apostle would have us see here, very important point, is that they're given for good. Uh, You can see that point here um, in verse 7, where the Apostle says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Paul wants to accent this also, that the whole point of the giving of gifts is not for my good. It's for the good of all of the people who come to church on Sunday morning. It's for the person left and right of you. It's the person back in front of you. It's for collectively the body of Christ that they would be benefited and built up. It's so that they would be better off than if they didn't have the gift. Better off. That's the sense. And I know that's the sense of the word because the same word is used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. And there the preacher says that, yes, we have earthly fathers who discipline us and we respect them. And the preacher says they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. And then it says God disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. Uh, The sense of the passage is this, is these parents he's thinking about, the assumption is they're all politically incorrect, and they spank their children. And they do that because they're teaching their children something about respect for authority. They're teaching them a healthy fear of those who are in charge. Uh, They're teaching them so that they will be receptive to instruction. They're teaching them to shape them. As individuals. And what the preacher says is, yeah, that goes on in the domestic sphere, that goes on in the home life. How much more then will God do that for those who are His children? He will discipline them for their good, for them being better off than if they hadn't been disciplined. You see? That's the entire point that the preacher there is saying about trials and about life's difficulties. They're sent by God to us to make us better off. And that's the thing that none of us believe when we're going through the trials. No one ever thinks when they're going through painful, discouraging, dark, emotionally trying times in their life that it's something that makes them better off. No one does. But that's the way God's Word teaches us to view them. Because eventually what God does through those difficulties is to teach us to trust Him, to teach us to pray to Him, to, trust, to teach us to seek Him, uh, to, to know the experience of having God's power unleashed in our life so that we make it through hard times. And believe me, you're a much better person if you go through times of great difficulty and yet you go through it with the help of God because you know that if it was up to you and if it was in your power and if it was in your strength, it would have been impossible for you to make it through. 
You see, that's the joy of trials. You're better off having had them because they contribute something to you. Now, let's just take that idea, slice it off, and bring it right back here to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And that's precisely what the apostle here is saying to the Corinthians. The gifts have been given so that the church is better off. I want to reconnect to that towards the end of this message this morning so that we have a powerful takeaway as we walk away from this set of instructions about spiritual gifts. But Paul is making the point clear at the outset here of talking about these extraordinary spiritual gifts. They're not just for you. They're not for self-exaltation. They're not for self-affirmation. They're not for your personal self-esteem. They are so that the church will be better off. Now, that's the backdrop. Let's get into what we've all been waiting for, breathlessly, for several weeks as I've delayed getting into actually talking about the specifics. And we do have to talk about specifics. We have to talk about the gifts here, beginning in verse 8. Two things I want to say by way of introduction before we get into our analysis of them. The first is this. I'm going to use the term extraordinary. When I use the term extraordinary, it's not to be understood as if I'm saying that the rest of the gifts that the Spirit gives to the body are just ordinary. Just plain things, you know. It's an unfortunate uh, term, I suppose, in the sense that it makes it sound like there's, there's uh, ordinary workings of the Spirit and then there's the really, really, really good stuff. Because that sort of makes people envious. All of what God does is extraordinary. All gifts are extraordinary. They're things that you can't, they're things that you don't have access to on your own. And so whatever God gives you, it's out of this world. You follow? And because it's out of this world, it's tremendously beneficial to you. But it's extraordinary in the theological sense that uh, people in the Reformed tradition have used this word to uh, describe what they think about these gifts. And what they are saying is they are extraordinary in the sense that uh, they were out of the ordinary and they were out of the ordinary for a limited time when the church needed these gifts until the completion of the canon of the New Testament scriptures. And once that came, once the apostles passed away, they're gone. Now I'm not going to argue for cessation this morning. I told you before when I began this series that I wasn't really going to do that until we had taken time to walk through the gifts here and explain what they were. And then we can talk about what happened to them. So I'm using extraordinary in that sense. And now secondly, I'm going to categorize the gifts. There are multiple ways to categorize the gifts here. I'm going to use two categories. Action gifts and revelatory gifts, okay? So we're going to sort of uh, structure our thinking and our proclamation about these gifts this morning in those categories. There are action gifts and there are revelatory gifts. Alright, that's enough introduction. First gift, under the action gifts this morning, is faith. The first gift is faith. You see that in verse 9. The first action gift is faith, where the Apostle Paul says, to another faith by the same Spirit. 
Now, this has perplexed people. Uh, Because it kind of sounds like what the Spirit is doing is giving everyone faith unto salvation, maybe. But most commentators, even though we agree with that as Reformed people, that's true. That's not what he's saying here. It's talking about a sort of kind of faith. Not saving faith, but a kind of faith. And there's two primary ways of looking at it. One is uh, the kind of faith that bears up under extreme persecution. That particular view has some merits to it. uh, One of which is that Charles Hodge holds it. And it's usually wrong to disagree with Hodge. I don't think that's quite the answer here, though. I think that faith here is uh, what Jesus speaks of in Matthew 21. You want to turn there with me? Matthew 21. Matthew 21. I would say this is what is on Paul's mind. A text that you're well aware of. It's uh, where Jesus curses a fig tree, right? He's returning to Jerusalem from Bethany. It's in the morning, and he's hungry, and he comes upon a fig tree in the road. Verse 19 says, And he found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said, No longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Now think about this. That fig tree is supposed to have fruit on it. That's problem number one. It only has leaves. That's sort of a dry description of what's going on in the passage. But uh, what, what the problem is, is there's the expectation that there would be fruit. And yet Jesus looks at this tree, he's hungry, um, and there's nothing on it, and so he curses it. And the sense is that uh, within a short span of time, the tree withers and dies. Now, if you saw something like that happen, what would be your response? Well, you might be a little scared, first of all. Which is understandable. You should be. If something like that happens before your eyes, that's terrifying. Uh, but you would also be amazed. And guess what? Verse 20 says the disciples were amazed. And they said, how did the fig tree wither all at once? Okay. This is the key. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt that you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Wow. Jesus says, look at what I did. That forms an analogy for what I want to teach you about prayer. And Jesus says, if you pray with full faith, you can literally look at the mountain over here across from us outside the, uh, the room here this morning and say, be moved into the sea, which is a good 40 miles from here. We can't quite see it. Uh, but um, Jesus says, that's the kind of thing you can accomplish with prayer. Just the kind of thing I did. Now, all of us would like to have a prayer life like that. Right? Usually because we either want something really bad, something good, and we'd love to have that kind of prayer power, or we have something really bad in our life and we want it out of the way. Now, you've probably heard people talk about this passage and say, you know what, the problem with you is, Satel, is that you just don't have the faith to be healed. 
The problem with you is, you just don't have enough trust in the Lord, so He's not going to take that thing away from you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking about uh, a sign gift given to the apostles here. And by the way, that's who is with Him. Apostles. Who are going to have this extraordinary capacity to pray about things and, and monumentally difficult or overwhelming or wonderful things will happen through the power of their prayers when they exercise faith with prayer. And the whole point of the gift is to confirm the revelation that is coming through them. By the way, that's exactly what's going on in context here. This is the last week of Jesus' ministry. That Jesus is condemning the Pharisees. Jesus is condemning the self-righteous among Israel. That fig tree stands for Israel and its fruitlessness. And Jesus is unbringing destruction upon this place. It's coming down. Confirmation, then. It's confirmation of the testimony that came through Christ. About the destruction that was to come upon Jerusalem soon. Now, I take it that what Jesus is saying here, when He says to the disciples, you can do this too, He's not saying to them that if the disciples uh, mail an envelope with the uh, assigned contribution, that somebody back in the prayer room will pray over it and sprinkle holy oil over it, send it back to your house, and now you're going to have this tremendous ability uh, to pray and get whatever you want. Jesus is saying this to his disciples, to the apostles, and they are to use this gift for the confirmation of the revelation that's going to come through them. That's what's going on here in this particular situation. It does seem now, as we come back to First Corinthians 12, that this is the kind of gift that Paul says some of you have. Some of you have this extraordinary faith-praying capacity. But remember now, it's part of, and in conjunction with, uh, the revelation that is coming by the Holy Spirit for the church. And it simply confirms it until the written revelation has finally been placed down and the canon has been completed. Okay, if that takes us uh, that much time to explain every one of the gifts here, we're in trouble this morning. That's faith. Okay? It's this unique ability to exercise faith and prayer and, and, and pray that God would do uh, just astounding things and it happens. Now, the second one is healings. You see that in verse 9. After he says to another faith by the same Spirit, he says to the other, the gift of healings uh, by the same Spirit. Uh, this won't take long at all because it's already self-evident. It's healings. The ability to bring physical wholeness to a person who is sick or in distress. Lots of examples, right? If we just don't even... This word, by the way, is used to refer to John the Baptist and Jesus and so forth in the Gospels. But even if we just look at the Apostles, we've got lots of examples, right? Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are walking up to uh, the temple precincts and the, uh, the crippled beggar is there. And they said, silver and gold... Uh, I have none, but such as I have, I give thee. And what do they do? Rise up and walk, and he's healed, right? We find this happening in um, Acts 14, that Paul heals a crippled man in, I believe it's uh, Lycanaia. We also see Paul uh, healing himself after he was bitten by a very poisonous snake in Acts 28. All kinds of healings. We see these across the New Testament. Uh, that's all that the Apostle is saying here. 
is that some had the capacity to bring physical wholeness to those uh, who were uh, afflicted with sickness. Miracles. What are they? Verse 10. To another the effecting of miracles. It almost sounds like he's talking about miracles with the healings, but it's just a little bit different here. Uh, There are a number of different ways of looking at this, but as usual, Calvin is probably right. Uh, When he says that it was an exercise of power against devils and against hypocrites. And you walk through a series of passages in the New Testament where you see something like this uh, happening. For instance, uh, there was a sorcerer in Acts chapter 13 that Paul afflicted with blindness. Uh, Acts chapter 16, you you might remember this narrative. uh, It's in Philippi that Paul was evangelizing, he was ministering around town, and there was this slave girl who walked around him, behind him day and night, I guess, crying out um, that Paul was a servant of the Most High God. And the text tells us that Paul got annoyed. And he cast uh, a demonic spirit out of her. We find him casting out demonic spirits in Acts 19. You also have the very extraordinary situation of... Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, where the apostles literally dealt them a death blow for lying. Remember that? Acts 5. People were selling their stuff, giving it to the church. They sold their stuff and said they gave it all to the church, but they kept some of it for their retirement plan. And uh, they, then they lied to the apostles about it. And they were literally struck dead. That's the kind of thing that... Uh, that Calvin says is what's going on here in this verse when the Apostle here speaks of um, these miracles. It was an extraordinary power, an extraordinary power uh, to defeat the forces of darkness and to expose, refute, and to punish hypocritical Christians. That's about as good an explanation as I, I think anybody else has. And, um, there's a lot of them out there. If you have a study Bible this morning, you're looking at it and comparing what your study Bible says with what I say, you'll probably find something different, but that's okay. But uh, remember, uh, no one has a, you know, a, a lifeline here where they, they have an infallible lifeline, so they know exactly what's going on in this, in this particular set of uh, gifts here. And I think that that's probably as good as any in, interpretation. The fourth action gift, and the final one, is the distinguishing of spirits. You see that in verse 10. It says, to another, the distinguishing of spirits. It's right after uh, the gift of prophecy. And the idea is the ability uh, to distinguish between a true revelation and a false revelation. We know that this was a problem. We know that this was a problem in the New Testament era because the apostles indicate that it was. First John chapter uh, four verse one says that the church is to test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The idea is that there was uh, there were people who were claiming to preach the truth in the name of Jesus Christ, and yet their revelations that they 
uh, were proclaiming were false. They were unbiblical. They were incoherent with the rest of the system of doctrine of the scripture. And so the apostles said, when you hear from people who claim to be prophets, you better be wise and discerning. Well, apparently there was this power of illumination that came directly from the Holy Spirit. Some people were furnished and equipped with it. And it was almost as if they have an intuitive power to understand when they hear something, whether it was right or was wrong. It's, a, it's as if they had this, this ability to know whether somebody was speaking directly from the Holy Spirit or from their own resources. And uh, Paul says there's some in the Corinthian church that have this supernatural intuition to know whether somebody's speaking truth or lies. Those are your four action gifts. They didn't all take as long as the first. Um, That brings us to our second category, the revelatory gifts. The revelatory gifts here. And uh, we can see them in verse 8, the beginning of them. And there's a lot of misconception here with uh, these two gifts spelled out in verse 8. Word of wisdom and word of knowledge. Uh, And it's safe to say as we begin this, that all the nonsense that you hear on TV from uh, TV preachers about word of faith or word of knowledge is 100% wrong. It's not based in the scriptures at all. It's, it's one of those cases where ungifted, untrained, unstudied people read into the passage what they want to be there. And I can tell you that's the truth because if you study these words out and see how Paul uses them, there's no excuse for missing what Paul is saying with them. Uh, you'll often hear people say, for instance, of word of wisdom, that it's some uh, incredible ability to exercise prudence. Some incredible ability to make decisions in difficult situations. Or some ability to communicate wisdom to a friend or a brother. Uh, that's all off track. Because the best way to interpret anything that somebody says is to see how they use words within the whole body of their communication. And if you turn back to chapter 1, you'll see that Paul uh, has been using wisdom, this word wisdom, uh, all throughout 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to show you a couple of instances in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and you can begin to see that the apostle has something very clear in mind when he talks about word of wisdom. And and when he starts talking about wisdom in chapter 1, you'll notice, for instance, in verse 17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so the cross would be made void. And then verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but those who are being saved is the power of God. You see, as you start working your way through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what you realize is that Paul has set up a contrast. There is the wisdom of the world, and then there is the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And the wisdom of the world, basically, is about manipulating people through speech. It's about uh, manipulation, it's about persuasion, it's about domination, it's about control, it's about mesmerizing people with words, and it's about getting people to do what you want. Paul talks about it and he says those people, when they hear the preaching of the cross, when they hear that Jesus is the Son of God who came and lived among us and lived a holy and obedient life and then the outcome of all that was death on the cross, they hear that message and they say that's that's, that's contrary to everything that we understand about how the world works. 
There's something wrong with that message. They said, that's a foolish message. Who would ever believe such a thing as a Savior who died? And of course, says this is how the Greeks look at it. They call it foolishness. In contrast to that was the actual message of the cross, which is that God saves through the power of the dead Savior who rose again from the dead. Uh, going to chapter 2, you see this contrast being set up a bunch more. Uh, you have the wisdom of the world, and you have God's wisdom. Paul says, I did not come to you. Verse 1 of chapter 2. I didn't come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom. He says, uh, my message and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom. Why, why wasn't it like that, Paul? Why weren't you speaking and preaching like the brilliant rhetoricians in Corinth? Why? After all, it would have been contextually meaningful. Isn't that what everybody tells us we're supposed to do today? If you want to connect with people out there in the world, what the church needs to do is study the world and figure out what the world is like, what the world likes, what the world does, and then go do it, just put Jesus on it. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Because now we're showing that we're down with the world, that we understand their ways, that we've penetrated their thinking, and all they really need to come to the fullness of understanding, happiness, and joy, is just put Jesus with it. Um, Paul says, I I studied what the world says, and what it does, and what it likes, and what it desires, and I left that all outside the door when I came into church. I didn't come to you with the ways, the instruments, the manipulation, the messages of the world. He said, here's what I did. I came and I preached Jesus Christ to you in the demonstration of the Spirit and the power. And he did it for a reason, so that their faith would not rest on worldly wisdom, he says in verse 5, but upon the gospel. He says, I loved you so much, I decided to show you that uh, Jesus and Christianity stuff is not like you. He didn't try to adapt to their culture. That's what he's saying. What I did is I brought a new culture to you. I brought a heavenly culture to you. I brought a revelatory culture from you. I brought the Holy Spirit to you in the preaching of the Word. And that's what made the change. Not the fact that I could show you how I was cool and hip and understood how to navigate all of your lingo and your ways and your practice and your culture. But... Notice how often that wisdom is associated with the Holy Spirit and is associated with revelation about the cross of Jesus Christ. It is associated with New Covenant revelation. And that's exactly what the Apostle is saying here when he comes down to this gift of word of wisdom back in chapter 12. He's saying the word of wisdom is essentially uh, divine communication. It's divine special revelation. Not some unique ability to exercise prudence in difficult situations. It is revelation from the Holy Spirit to the church. The other one that is paired up with here is word of knowledge. Word of knowledge. And again, you need to look at how Paul uses knowledge. Many uh, people will tell you that word of knowledge is about uh, some immediate, direct communication of some fact. For instance, 
This happened to one of my friends in high school who somehow got himself dragged down to a revival meeting. And uh, you know how the story goes. The evangelist is up front and he's showing the power of the Holy Spirit by uh, randomly picking out people in the crowd who need to come down and get Jesus that day. And uh, they'll tell you that there's a man out there with brown hair and a backache and a toothache and bad finances and he needs to come down right now uh, to get saved. And of course, if you meet that description, it's powerfully overwhelming. Uh, it wasn't too hard in the case of my friend's uh, case. He, he looked rebellious, he had long hair, and uh, he just didn't fit the situation. And the, and the evangelist looked right at him, eye to, eyeball to eyeball, and said, Craig, you need to come down. And that, that kid was just, I mean, just overwhelmed. He didn't go down, but he was really scared, because he thought, man, this evangelist... Uh, must have had a word of knowledge, as everybody told him. That's not a word of knowledge. Knowledge is used by the Apostle Paul throughout his writings, refers to divine revelation. Just listen to these verses. Romans 2.20, the Apostle Paul says that in the law is the embodiment of knowledge. Notice how he equates supernatural, special Divine revelation with what? Knowledge. Romans 11.33, the Apostle says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's looking right back at Romans chapter 11, where Paul describes this process of uh, what's going to go on in the church age between uh, Gentiles coming to Christ, provoking Jews, and so the Jews believe in Christ. This back and forth process as the means by which God brings all the elect to salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul simply looks back at that process and says that divine revelation of the divine plan of salvation, he calls it knowledge, or the depth of the knowledge. Paul talks about this in Corinthians 4, that he speaks the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. What is that? It's the the new covenant revelation about the gospel and Jesus Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 3, that in Christ are are, uh, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's not talking there about how Jesus knows calculus and advanced algebra and chemistry and molecular biology and archaeology. No, what he's doing is he's contrasting the revelation which is in Jesus Christ, which is sure and firm and stable, with the false claims to revelation, a speculative philosophy, in Colossians chapter 2, which is making its inroads into the church. There's knowledge in Christ. That's what he's saying. And Jesus has received that knowledge and he imparts that knowledge to his apostles by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13, 2, the apostle Paul says, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge there. Notice that Paul connects knowledge with prophecies. You may feel like I'm torturing the passage uh, by, by, by going on so long. You get the point, right? When Paul uses knowledge, he's not talking about the fact that uh, just walking down uh, the street randomly, some, uh, some bit or fragment of knowledge about a situation just somehow miraculously, supernaturally comes to your mind. When he's saying that uh, there is this word of knowledge, he's talking about the fact that there are people who are receiving direct, divine, special revelation. It fits perfectly then with what comes next. Prophecy. Right? Prophecy. 
That's the uh, third revelatory gift, which is in our passage here. Paul says, uh, verse 10, to another prophecy. What is prophecy? Well, a prophecy is uh, a speaking uh, for God to men. You go back to the original prophet, Moses. And this is precisely uh, what you find in Exodus chapter 4, when God was calling Moses to be his leader. To go talk to Pharaoh. Uh, basically, God says, I'm going to take my words and I'm going to put them on your mouth. And Moses says, uh, I've been sheep herding so long in the desert, all I can do is say, blah, 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 blah. I got all just blabber. He says, I can't even talk right. So God says, fine. Take your brother Aaron with you. And you tell Aaron what I told you. And when Aaron speaks, it will be just as if Aaron was my mouth. You see, it's a direct communication of the divine mind and will to those who he raises up and furnishes with this gift. In other words, it is communication of divine, infallible, inspired, and errant revelation to the church. You need to be aware of this, that there are some now in the Reformed community who are advocating another view of prophecy. The so-called fallible interpretation, the fallible view of prophecy, put forward by a really smart guy, who's a, in many cases an exceptional New Testament scholar named uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem. Uh, but he's completely wrong. Uh, he makes the case here that uh, basically prophecy is just pious advice. You say, no, Sautel, uh, sometimes you get a little extreme. Well, listen to Grudem for yourself. He says this. Whatever people would say about prophecy, I would say, what about advice from friends and counsel from friends? How do you understand that? Same thing. Can't God work through that? Sure, he says. Well, can't God work through prophecy? What's the difference? I don't see there's qualitatively different thing. He compares prophecy with uh, you just giving pious Godly counsel to a friend. That's not how the word's used anywhere in the Bible. For some reason, he's come up with some evidence that supposedly establishes the position, and it's just completely unbiblical. A couple of passages which clearly point to the fact that prophecy is divine communication is Acts 11.28, the case of Agabus, who was identified as a prophet. The Word of God says he stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. In other words, what the text is communicating is that the Holy Spirit was furnishing Agabus revelation. And the fact that it wasn't fallible is the evidence that there was actually a nearly worldwide famine under the reign of Claudius between 41 and 44 AD. See, it came to pass. It's not this fallible, imperfect, seeing through a glass dimly kind of stuff that the Greeks said. No, no, no. It came right from the Holy Spirit. Because the text says, he's indicated by the Holy Spirit. One other passage. Acts 21. Acts 21.10, Agabus again, in Caesarea, speaking to Paul. So he took Paul's belt, 
bound his feet in his hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. Now, does that sound like fallible, imperfect, personal pious advice, counsel given to a friend? No. The passage literally says that the Holy Spirit spoke through Agabus. That's prophecy. That's revelation. And it actually happened when Paul went to Jerusalem. So it was inerrant. It was infallible. So the gift of prophecy is the reception of divine communication for the church. Remember, again, the context of why these gifts are being given is because uh, there wasn't this New Testament. There wasn't a set of pew Bibles. New American Standard pew Bibles given to the church, you see. The, the writings had not been collected yet. And so in that period of time, in this thriving metropolis of Corinth, uh, there were all kinds of circumstances and needs that had to be fulfilled when the Holy Spirit generously poured out these gifts upon the Corinthians so that they would have the revelation that they needed until the Scriptures had finally been written and put together and the canon had been formed. You see here two more gifts and we're almost done. Two more gifts here this morning. The first one is tongues. That fourth gift on the passage here, verse 10, we're told to another various kinds of tongues. And and this is probably one of those gifts that uh, you've been wanting to find out about. And we've all been told uh, that tongues uh, basically... Uh, sounds like uh, um shamagama jambalai shitabata hyundai and somehow there's something in that right you've all been told that isn't that true but that's not true that's not what is in the bible even turn with me to acts chapter 2 acts chapter 2 and the first incident of speaking in tongues And uh, you know the context is the disciples have been instructed by Jesus to go to Jerusalem and to wait until an endowment from on high through the Holy Spirit has come upon them. It is the day of Pentecost. It is the day of Pentecost. And all of a sudden we're told in verse 2, a noise like violent rushing wind filled the whole house. And there appeared above their head tongues of fire. And it rested on each one of them. And now verse 4 says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, what is it that's going on there? It says they were beginning to, to speak with them. Were they just babbling uh, incoherently? Well, no. Look at verse 6. It tells you that. When this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Dialect. He's talking about real language systems here. And what happened is as the Spirit came upon these disciples, they had a supernatural capacity to speak the Gospel in the language of the foreign people who were gathered there together in Jerusalem. Verse 8 reconfirms that. It says, how is it that we each hear them in our own language? And you say, well, how many different languages could there have been in Jerusalem? After all, we know it's just a bunch of Jews that live there. No, look at verse 9. There were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, 
Cappadocia, Parthus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Do you see what's going on now when they're all saying in verse 8? We hear them in our own language. This is not mumbo-jumbo. This is not babbling. This is an incoherent. They are saying, it's recorded uh, in their inspiration, that they immediately understood that tongues was the communication of gospel truth in foreign languages, and those disciples had never used the, the Rosetta Stone of acquiring new languages. And we know that's what it all is. Because verse 10 says, We hear them in our tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Peter immediately interprets that event in view of Joel 2.28, the prophecy that in the last days God would pour out His Spirit on all mankind and sons and daughters would prophesy and they would see visions and dream dreams. Peter says, this is what's going on. This is what Joel talked about. This speaking in tongues is this promise of what? Prophecy. Divine communication of God's special revelation to the church. Tongues. That's exactly what the Apostle is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 12. To some have been given the gift of tongues. To some have been given the capacity to communicate divine revelation in a foreign language they had never studied in their life. And you know what? What makes me feel very comfortable about that translation this morning is that I didn't make it up. I didn't get it from Charles Hodge or John Calvin or St. Augustine. I got it right out of the Bible. The Bible told me. The Bible tells you this morning that tongues is a speaking of the gospel truth in a foreign language that's not your own, that you've never studied, and somehow, supernaturally, the Holy Spirit enables you to speak in a language you've never studied or heard in your entire life. That's what tongues is. That should make interpretation of tongues pretty easy, right? Interpretation of tongues is simply the capacity to translate that foreign language that one has never studied heard somebody just start speaking and under the power of the Holy Spirit they could take that language and translate it into the language of the hearing audience so that they would be edified too. All of That's all speaking in tongues was and that's all interpretation of tongues means. An ability by the Holy Spirit to translate a foreign language you've never studied before into the language of the hearing audience so that they can be edified by that divine revelation. We'll come back and talk about tongues more in chapter 14 because some people say, oh, that can't be what's going on uh, in chapter 14. And it most certainly is. But we'll save it for them to talk about. But those are your revelatory gifts. Word of wisdom word of knowledge, prophecy, speaking in tongues, and interpretations of tongues. Those are the extraordinary gifts uh, that Paul speaks of. These are the special gifts given by the Holy Spirit, by the laying on of hands of the apostles, for the blessing of the people of God. It was designed 
to provide new covenant revelation to the church until the scriptures had been written. That's what it was. And you say, okay, thank you for clearing that up for me. Now what do I take away from this passage this morning? What does it mean to me? I thought about that. That's a very important question for us to ask because maybe one reason why we as Reformed people stay away from 1 Corinthians 12-14 through is we've decided there's no takeaway for the people of God after all. Basically, our sermon is the same every time you hear it. All that stuff's in the past. Don't worry about it. That doesn't sound like it's got a lot of application in it. And so as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about verse 7, what I wanted to think about is what Paul says, these gifts have been given for the good. And we already talked about that, meaning the better off. How does God giving these gifts to the Corinthians not only amount to their being better off, but to you being better off? And the answer is, Ephesians 2.20 Ephesians 2.20 The Apostle Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built together in a dwelling of God by the Spirit The key word in that verse is foundation Kind of like what we see around us. Hard-packed earth is filled in, covered over by cement. And it dries, and once that happens, we can build a building. Paul says that's what these gifts were. These revelatory gifts, these action gifts, were foundation. They were the concrete upon which the church could now be built. And if you think about that, you begin to understand the significance of that to you this morning. Because if you don't have a foundation, you can't have walls. If you don't have a foundation, you can't build a church. And what these gifts mean for us here this morning is that you now can be a brick in the wall. It means literally that Jesus could take you in your brokenness, reshape you into His image, and make you into a brick, and put you in the wall of God's church, and you could form the actual walls, which the Apostle says are growing and being built up, held together for what purpose? That the Holy Spirit may dwell. Do you see why this this passage and these gifts are practical to you? Because if you don't have this foundation, you don't have walls. And if you don't have walls, you don't have a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. The application of this passage to you this morning, people of God, is that God has graciously built a foundation so that The walls of the church can now be built by sovereign grace made up of people like us. And the Holy Spirit comes in amongst us and fills us and makes us His dwelling place. And so you get to experience the powerful indwelling of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit gave 
these gifts to the church so that a foundation could be laid, so that walls could be raised up. These gifts were given for you, and without them there would be no church, there would be no walls, there'd be no bricks, there'd be no building, there'd be no dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we leave this passage with gratitude in our hearts for a foundation. Because upon that foundation, we are united together to form the walls of the church. And to be by the magnificent grace of God, a dwelling place for His Spirit. Let's pray.